This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to This Week. Now, most people think migration to Australia has helped make this country the vibrant, multicultural place it is today. After a pause during the pandemic, international arrivals have been surging as employers try to fill vacancies. But, as we were reminded this week, there can be a dark side to Australia's immigration success story. A federal government review found near-industrial-scale levels of sexual exploitation, human trafficking and organised crime have been going undetected and unpunished, with dodgy migration agents exploiting those who come here in search of work and a better life. He basically didn't give my mum full-time work as per the visa conditions, um, was underpaid and we found out that the Australian Border Force sanctioned him because he was mistreating other migrants as well. When Ravneet Kaur and her parents came here from India in 2015, they soon discovered they were like many other migrants not provided with the right documentation they needed to remain. And that was the reason why basically the permanent residency application got rejected as well. We've had the tribunal hearing this year and we've applied for the ministerial application. So we're basically just waiting and it's been like eight years now. To clamp down on experiences like that, the federal government's committed $50 million to establish a new division within the Home Affairs Department to boost immigration compliance and target organised abuse of immigration programs. But the changes are also sending a chill through those caught up in the system. Look, I think that what it can do is send a message that they're not necessarily going to get a fair hearing of their claims. And so Mm. it can instill a considerable amount of fear that they will be persecuted if returned to their homeland. I mean, these are so often life or death matters and it can really instill serious fear in people that they may not get a fair hearing of their case for protection. David Mann is a human rights lawyer and executive director of Refugee Legal. He believes the changes are for the better. Look, I think it's a significant step forward in much-needed reform of the protection processing system, you know, and a system mired in inefficiencies, in dysfunction and extraordinary delays. You know, people in the tens of thousands waiting for years on end for an interview, let alone a decision on their case, and um, really a system that had been run into the ground. At its heart, Mm. these reforms really appear to be common sense and fair. Um, and they've got the real potential to ensure, you know, what is most fundamental in this system, that is that uh, there is proper identification of who needs protection under a system that's fair and, and quick and robust. I think it's fair to say that you're one of the few people in this country who has a very good handle on how our immigration system works or, or doesn't work in some cases. How surprised were you by what was revealed in the Nixon review? Oh, look, not surprised at all. I think that the issues about exploitation in the system are well known. You know, so I'm not at all surprised. I think the real issue is how to address the problem and really the fundamental failures over a long period to actually take these issues seriously and to do something about them so that we have a system where people that have claims for protection can have them heard fairly and quickly And for those that don't, 
that they are actually able to get, you know, proper advice before applying. And if they do apply, that they also get fairness, but also a quick decision so that, you know, we don't have a system where for years and years on end, people who are so often um, subject to exploitation and other kinds of abuse in a system which then goes on for years with Mm. protracted delays, but also clogs up the system. I suspect this is an issue many Australians don't think about a lot. So where is the migration system failing? Is it simply that people who want to apply for asylum apply and it just takes way too long and some of those people should be told no pretty quickly and others should be given more certainty much more quickly? Yeah, well, at its heart, what the system should do is it should ensure that there is proper identification of protection need of people Mm. who apply and that it should be done fairly and quickly and rigorously. And that just simply has not been the case. In fact, the opposite has been the case. The causes of this, you know, are multiple. And so too are the backlogs and delays. But look, in addition to that, and I think that is central, there's also been a, a you know, a, a securitisation approach to decision making, you know, which has been very much based on deterrence rather than going back to fundamentals, which should apply to any system, and that is fairness and efficiency and overly complex and inflexible frameworks and really which have resulted in people also being denied fair hearings across the board. So I think that really central to this has been resource depletion on an industrial scale. Immigration in this country always seems to get swiftly caught up in daily politics and the Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill was quick to put the blame for this on opposition leader Peter Dutton. We've had Peter Dutton, who's built his political career, talking to everyone about what a tough guy he is on borders and at the same time he's been cutting funding to compliance, cutting funding to the immigration section of the department and on his watch literally people with criminal convictions walked into the country and oversaw large rings of human trafficking and sexual slavery, literally the worst crimes that can be committed on this great earth. He then fired back with his own response. Um, I'll say about Claire O'Neill, I mean, she's a very angry person, uh, always very angry and very aggressive, and uh, the negativity coming out of uh, Claire O'Neill today and and the overstated position that she's taken, uh, frankly, is uh, all about trying to provide cover uh, for a bad Prime Minister. The phrase often pulled out in these debates is the fish rots from the head. But in this instance, how how much responsibility do ministers have, particularly past ministers, for the current state of affairs in Australia? Well, they oversee the system. I mean, they have the fundamental responsibility for oversight of the system and ensuring that it does what it should, that it Mm. functions properly, that it ensures in this case that people who are applying for a protection against persecution get a fair and efficient process. And that just simply hasn't happened for well over a decade. So I think the responsibility lies fairly and squarely on the government of the day and ministers that head up uh, those portfolios, but also, as well as that, of course, on the department. But I think fundamentally, Mm -hmm. it does go to the top. And there has been a systematic failure by previous governments to properly deal with this issue and it's just built up and up and then the system has, as I mentioned, been really run into the ground. There's also this suggestion, David, that asylum seekers and other would-be migrants have been exploiting loopholes in the system and there are some accounts of people smugglers, criminals, others without legitimate claims using the system to stay in Australia for years. How big of a problem do you think that actually is? Look, the first point on it is really that, you know, while unmeritorious or fraudulent claims, including particularly through exploitation, do constitute a proportion of this problem and a proportion of the backlog of applications, 
it is only one part of the story, but I do mm. think that it's an important part of it. Yeah. And while there's no doubt there are migration agents and others and syndicates, you know, what are called criminal syndicates involved in this, and we see evidence of this, certainly when we're talking about migration agents and that industry, it would be the exception, not the rule um, mm. from our observation, but there is clear evidence of patterns of, you know, migration agents and others engaging exploitation and serious misconduct, including exploitation and people trafficking, you know, encouraging people to apply for protection when they simply don't have a case. Right. So when it comes to migration agents, you think most are doing the right thing, but some, a, very, a small number, are what? Urging people to apply for visas status that they're almost certainly never going to achieve. Oh, there's clear evidence, a clear pattern of this, and it's. But, but this is long-standing. It's not a new phenomenon, and I think that uh, it's well known within the migration profession. It's well known within government that this has been a problem and continues to be a problem. The real question again is not whether it's a problem; it's a question of what to do about it. Mm. And there has been a serious lack of resources to regulate this problem, and mm. uh, that's why I think in this reform the announcement that there will be significant additional resources to ensure proper compliance and regulation of the migration profession is a very important step forward, as long as it's done properly and fairly and rigorously. Okay, well, let's get to the government's response. What's your initial reaction? Uh, is this enough to fix holes in compliance in the immigration system? Well, I think it's a significant step forward in much-needed reform of the protection processing system, as I said, because what it does is it's a major boost to resourcing across the system, not just one part of it, not just the Department of Home Affairs, but it's a whole-of-system approach, and this has been seriously lacking in the past. You know, so a significant boost to decision-making capability across the system from the Department of Home Affairs, where the first decision is made on someone's case, through to merits review at the tribunal, and then to the courts in what is an integrated system is a really important step forward. It's a strategic response that is required. Is it enough? Are there enough resources being dedicated to this? Well, time will tell, but I think a lot of this will come down to ensuring that resources are brought on board quickly and that people from the beginning of the process get a fair and efficient and quick decision on their case. David Mann is a human rights lawyer and executive director of Refugee Legal. Well, Australia's last remaining Liberal government still in power was this week pushed to the very brink of survival after the resignation of the state's Attorney-General, Elise Archer. Just over a week ago, News Corporation reports claimed at least two current or former members of her staff had raised allegations of bullying and inappropriate behaviour with the state's anti-discrimination commissioner. But leaked text messages also emerged, including one labelling her leader, the Tasmanian Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe, gutless. Perhaps not surprisingly, he responded by asking her to resign from Cabinet, though he said he was motivated to do so by messages in which the former Attorney-General had said she was sick of victim survivors. If culture is to change in this state, it requires leadership and accountability. And that starts from the top. I cannot accept a culture of belittling and a culture uh, whereby people are not uh, valued 
and respected for the work that they do and indeed the people that they are. But the political storm only got worse when Elise Archer first vowed to resign from Parliament, then backtracked and said she would sit as an independent. Suddenly, it seemed Jeremy Rotcliffe could lose the top job in a motion of no confidence or that Tasmanians were facing the prospect of an early election. But after days of uncertainty, Elise Archer broke the impasse by announcing she would step down from Parliament and it appears the Rockcliffe government will survive, at least for now. But some are wondering whether Elise Archer has dealt the Rockcliffe government a mortal blow. Elise Archer was the most senior Liberal female politician in the country. She was mm. the state's Attorney-General. She'd been in Parliament here for 13 years. She was a blue-blue lib, representing mm. the seat of Clark here from Sandy Bay, so a wealthy sort of part of Hobart. She'd been the first female speaker of the lower house here, so quite somebody. And mm. she'd been seen as, you know, a pretty safe pair of hands. In opposition, she was seen as a very effective shadow minister, so... Until this past week and a half, she was very much viewed as a clean pair of hands and she had avoided any scandal. AM presenter Sabra Lane is based in Hobart and has closely watched the events unfolding there. It was quite extraordinary, actually. Mm. Tasmania is often pointed to as being the last standing Liberal government in Australia, but it was quite a week. It was quite an ugly mess for the government to negotiate its way through it. So it is a crisis. So Tasmanian politics has a slightly unusual electoral system. (laughs) Can you briefly explain how it works? Look, you know, Tassie is well known where the island adventure playground for the mainland, full of beautiful craft and boutique goods, (laughs) fine wine and spirits, but we are also home to some rather quirky politics thanks to the system of electing politicians through the Hare-Clark system. It's a way where the state is broken up into five seats and five members are voted in for each of those seats and that makes up the lower house. Right. And that system usually produces fairly tight results by design. Yes. But the Tasmanian Liberals were in a really precarious minority position before this week occurred. Can you remind us, how did they end up with such a narrow grasp on power? Yeah, look, the last election that was held in 2021, the Libs won quite handsomely on paper. But the thing is, the government had become quite shaky. We've had three ministers quit last year, including a Premier, because they all cited various reasons. They were burnt out, and certainly in the former Premier's case, Peter Gutwin, but there are other ministers too who quit saying that they had needed to go off and have time with their families. So under the Hare Clark system, instead of going to another election, what the Electoral Commission does here is that it does a count back system. It goes through all the votes again to elect the sort of the next person who would be next cab off the rank had those people not been standing in the election. So With all of those various people going, there were new Liberals brought into Parliament. But the thing is, two of those new Liberal members of Parliament in May this year said they couldn't be with the government anymore because they had problems with what the government had been promising in regards to delivering the new 
AFL football stadium in Hobart and also the proposed Marinus Energy Link to the mainland. These new members had problems with those two things because the state is promising to spend a lot of eye-watering taxpayer dollar money on these things. And those two new Liberals said that they were very uncomfortable with all of this. So they were sitting already on the crossbench saying that they would support the government in terms Mm. of supply and confidence, but already putting the government in a pretty shaky position before this issue blew up with Elise Archer. So after the last election, the Liberals had... 13 seats out of 25, and then after those two defected, they had 11 with two independents who were going to support them. So this week was really important. For Australians uh, who don't pay a lot of attention to Tasmanian politics, it all seemed to really come out of the blue. How did this happen? Well, look, to a degree, it did come out of the blue. The Australian newspaper published an article saying that State's Attorney-General, Elise Archer, had been accused of bullying and belittling behaviour by two unnamed staff members. And there were also some nasty WhatsApp messages had been leaked to the paper too about what she'd allegedly said about the Premier, claiming that Jeremy Rockcliffe was gutless and that the previous Premier, Peter Gutwin, had a glass jaw. Now, Mm. the Premier announced that he was going to have an investigation into these bullying claims because the Parliament here, not unlike the Parliament in Canberra, has been beset by claims of unsavoury behaviour happening at Parliament, bullying and, Mm. you know, a toxic environment. Elise Archer initially welcomed this inquiry, but quickly, within 24 hours, Mr Rockcliffe said he had asked Ms Archer to resign from Cabinet because of remarks he had seen that had been attributed to her. He wasn't about to repeat them, but he said that they were pretty unacceptable by any standard. Yesterday I was made aware of information in relation to remarks Ms Archer had made outside what had already been uh, reported. Those remarks are unacceptable by any standard and unequivocally uh, fall short of expectations uh, for a Minister of the Crown. As a consequence of this, uh, Ms Archer is no longer a member of uh, my Cabinet. So, Sabra, do we know what she said and where? It was a leaked WhatsApp message that Ms Archer had sent her staff that said, quote, she was sick of victim survivors. Now, Mm. the timing of this leak was very dangerous for the government. It had just heard the final report from a commission of inquiry into child abuse in, in government departments and hospitals in institutional settings which had basically heard how government departments, bureaucrats, MPs had failed the state and failed child abuse victims because, you know, for too often, for too long, these kids weren't believed. And so to suddenly have this message out there saying that the state's chief law officer was, quote, sick of victim survivors Mm. was really damaging for a government that said it was intent on cleaning this up. Mm. Now, Ms Archer has said it was very, very unfair, this message, because it was completely taken out of context. It was something that happened months and months ago and it had nothing to do with this commission of inquiry. But she indicated at the time that she would quit the party and she would quit parliament. But... (laughs) <laughs> dun, dun, dun. She said very quickly that she was reconsidering that, perhaps because someone got into her ear and said, hey, you could be a pretty powerful figure here in a minority parliament. 
And that's exactly basically what happened. She right. said that she was reconsidering her options. She was considering sitting as an independent and that she may not be able to guarantee confidence and supply to the government in that circumstance. So just unpacking that, if she was going to sit on the crossbench, suddenly eh, maybe the government didn't have the numbers to control what was happening in the lower house. Maybe there could be an early election. Maybe an early election. And it looked like basically, given that situation, the government had 10 seats of a 25-seat parliament. I think that's chaos in anyone's language, really. That is a very Um, weak position, yes. Yeah, and it's a really messy position for the government to be in. High-stakes drama. (laughs) It was high-stakes drama. You know, it's spinning. Ultimately, Elise Archer backed down. And uh, under Tasmania's electoral system, there's not going to be a by-election, but a recount of votes. She'll probably be replaced by Liberal. Is the threat to Premier Rockcliffe over? Look, for now it is. But you can never say never, and there's an expectation that the state will go to an early election at some point. And, you know, Mm. for now, Mr Rockcliffe has been able to avoid an early election. But, James, it has to be said that two of those ex-Liberal, still current independent members who sit on the independent crossbenches, they're not fully behind Jeremy Rockcliffe as Premier Mm. either, it has to be said. One of them has said during this whole fracas that he'd like to see the Deputy Michael Ferguson challenge (laughs) for the leadership, i.e. he reckons he'd make a better Premier. And Lara Alexander, the other independent, has said that she's now thinking about whether she can continue to honour her commitment of supply and confidence Mm. to the government. So she's certainly flagging that that can't be taken for granted anymore, even though she's given that written assurance. That was AM presenter Sabra Lane. Now, you've no doubt heard the US Congress has been in chaos this week after the Speaker of the House of Representatives was voted out for the first time in history. A group of far-right Republican politicians successfully got rid of one of their own, Kevin McCarthy. Doing the right thing isn't always easy, but it is necessary. I don't regret standing up for choosing governance over grievance. It is my responsibility... It is my job. I do not regret negotiating. Our government is designed to find compromise. The chaos came after Congress narrowly avoided a government shutdown with a temporary bill which Mr McCarthy ushered through, angering some of the more extreme members of his party. The challenge came from Florida Congressman Matt Gates and was cheerfully helped on by House Democrats. Mr Speaker, my friend from Oklahoma says that my colleagues and I who don't support Kevin McCarthy would plunge the House and the country into chaos. Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word. The House Speaker is a powerful role in the US, so why did Kevin McCarthy's own party want him gone? What we these days associate Kevin McCarthy with, uh, I would say, in, in the course of the past year, for instance, starting the impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. He single-handedly did that to basically appease the more extreme wings of the Republican Party, but also releasing into the public some of the records from January 6th. Garana Gorgic is from the United States Study Centre. 
These days we talk about the United States politics as being flooded with unprecedented events and this is certainly <laughs> one of those. So mm. uh, never in the history of the United States has the US speaker been deposed through this sort of motion, especially a motion that would then come from the members of his own party. But effectively he was pushed out by his own party the first time this has happened. So why do Republicans want him gone? Some Republicans want him gone because of particular political motivations, so uh, as, as a way to further their own cause. What happened right. was that some of the caucus members of the Republican Party who sit at the very extreme ends of it put together a motion, and this was spearheaded by Matt Gates, a congressman from Florida, who is also not a stranger to a lot of controversy and uh, someone who Kevin McCarthy had a very uneasy relationship with over the course of his tenure as a speaker. On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 210. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. But also a lot of them are saying that the deal that he struck with the Democrats last week to avoid government shutdown is something that made them really distrustful of Kevin McCarthy. This is also one of the things that uh, some of the Democrats have said that, you know, Kevin McCarthy is someone that they can't trust because, uh, yes, they did strike that deal. But also, again, this is a person who is responsible for starting an impeachment inquiry into the sitting president. The one thing that the White House, House Democrats, and many of us on the conservative side of the Republican caucus would argue is that the thing we have in common, Kevin McCarthy said something to all of us at one point or another that he didn't really mean and never intended to live up to. The Republican Party's been divided for a while. Kevin McCarthy will probably argue he was just pulled in too many directions and disliked by everyone in the end. Where's Donald Trump been in all this? Presumably, as someone who is uh, the leading candidate to become the next presidential nominee, he could have called for calm if he'd wished to do so. Well, Donald Trump does often act as the leader of the Republican Party. There is no doubt in that. But in terms of the party discipline that we would often associate with Westminster political systems, including Australian, that type of discipline is simply not there in the United right. States. Donald Trump did, of course, send out some statements saying that the Republicans essentially shouldn't be uh, fighting amongst each other, that this is the energy that they should basically channel towards the Democrats. So Republicans, because they have the numbers in the House of Representatives, if they unite, uh, they can pick the replacement. Who do you think is likely to replace Kevin McCarthy? And could it even be Donald Trump himself? Donald Trump would be that very left of the field pick. I think that at the moment we have a couple of names that have come out that already uh, congressmen who are in the House of Reps have said that they would be interested in that position. Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan. So in terms of Donald Trump potentially being that person, historically, speakers of the House came from the ranks of people who have been elected to serve in the Congress. So this would truly be uh, something that's unprecedented mm -hmm. in itself right. following this unprecedented ouster. 
Okay. So let's talk about Donald Trump. He is the clear frontrunner for the presidential nomination, despite facing around 90 criminal charges in multiple cases. Is he going to be the next nominee, do you think, despite all the chaos that's going on around him? One thing that has to be said is that if we are going to see a rematch of 2020, we will see a lot of voters being really dissatisfied and disillusioned with the state of U.S. politics. It seems that, you know, one trend is constant, and that is very high numbers of old Americans say that they want the none of the above sort of options if these are the two candidates. So we will see what this might do actually to the overall turnout at those elections. But if there is a rematch, we are in again for a potentially very tight race when it comes to electoral college votes. If it is a rematch, it's going to be one where there will be a huge push, I think, on both sides to mobilize voters to actually turn out and vote because a lot of voters have turned into these nota voters, as I said, the none of the above, because they just don't want to see Biden and Trump fighting for it again. Mm. Just finally, what do you think Australians should make of this latest political controversy? Can America still be relied on to do things like follow through on the AUKUS agreement, given that political chaos uh, seems to be something of a default position right now? Well, what Australia and the rest of the world take away from all of this is that we need to sort of price in the instability in the US political system as just part of the way that allies and partners deal with the United States. And that means that in, in terms of relying on particular legislation to be passed or, you know, appropriations and, and similar, there needs to be this sort of contingency always that is part of the planning moving forward. We've been here for quite some time, and this is a product of growing political polarization and partisanship in the United States. Again, not something that we've just seen coming out in the Biden era, but also in just Trump era, we we saw, for instance, going even if, if you think about America's rebalance to the Indo-Pacific, the so-called pivot of the Obama years being very much taken hostage by government shutdowns in the early 2010s. So this is part of the trend. And I think that already we've seen some adaptation to what's been happening, but we will probably see much more moving forward. Garana Gorgic is from the United States Study Centre. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It is produced by Nick Grimm, Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, James Glenday. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.